Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Feel free to use Malachi or Joel. So, sorry to bother you, Jim. I didn't want to bother you. So I don't have to even deal with that this week, which is, I'm, I'm just kidding. He would never be that nice to me. Um, in your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel this morning. And while you're doing that, I'm going to lead my lead in here. Um, as I thought about, Pastor didn't give me a lot of time this time to work on this. He, he hit me about two weeks ago about a sermon, and I, I don't have sermons to pull out of the hat, so... I, uh, I started to think about what I want to preach about. Really, there's only two broad topics, I believe, that's worth preaching on, and that's who God is and how we respond to that. And that's, that really covers everything we need to know. And as I, interestingly, that same week that he asked me, I went home for lunch, and uh, I'm kind of blessed with that. My family comes to my house for lunch every Sunday, all my kids, grandkids. I get to have everybody there, and I, I don't take that for granted. And sometimes my grandson uh, likes to say a prayer before lunch. And, uh, hey, don't beat me up afterwards, please. Okay, all right. He's <laughs> a lot bigger than I am, man. That guy's scary. Um, and in this prayer, he says, he's, this is what he prayed. He said, Lord, I pray for everybody in the whole world that nobody dies and nothing bad happens. And as I heard that prayer, I, I thought it was kind of humorous at the time. I thought, boy, there's kind of unrealistic goals. But... As I thought about that later on, I thought, that's not that much different than how I pray. I mean, do we not pray that nothing bad happens to our family and to the people we know? I mean, we tend to pray that way. And, and the question is, does God really withhold all bad things from us? And is it commensurate with our faith? And how does that all play out? And how is life in the real world? I mean, how should we pray, and, and how is that work out in reality? Well, if you watch a lot of today's sermons and messages and theology, and I, I do watch a lot of preachers. I don't get to hear a lot of sermons here, here, so I watch them online at work. It's kind of nice. You can just put one on, and uh, I watch them on TV at home, and I give everybody, I'll be honest with you, I give everybody one chance, and some guys have only ever had one chance, and sometimes they've only had five minutes, and, and I heard some things this week about a certain... Uh, preacher in his book if, if you read this I mean I mean this guy he cannot even be saved if he believes what he had in his book but this particular uh, recently I jotted down some quotes from a sermon from a guy that's on TV and I just wanted to say these to you uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about them and here's the quotes from the preacher and he's talking about God he didn't create you to be average he didn't create you to barely get by to have all kinds of things holding you back God created you to be totally free, to have peace in your mind, to walk in divine health, to have good relationships, to have plenty to pay your bills. God created us as victors, not victims. And this is the one we want to focus on. And he said this, our expectations are setting the limits for our life. Now, expectations is just another word for faith. Because what we expect to happen, that's what we have faith in. And if we expect this to happen, our faith is there. He's saying our faith sets the limits for our lives. So 
the, the question I want to ask this morning is, how does that play out in the real world? Now, I'm all for positive thinking. I really hate, one thing I hate about myself, and I'll be honest with you, I hate that I'm so negative. Because when I get to work, and my daughter works for me, she'll tell you, as soon as something comes up, I'm like, well, it's not going to work out. This is this, he's going to fail. I'm going to have to do his job and my job. You know, PennDOT's going to definitely mess this up, and they're not going to agree. You know, and that's how I tend to get, because in the real world, that's what happens. Okay? Everything seems to go wrong. And you know what? That's part of the curse. We talked about that before. The curse of man guarantees that we're going to have struggles. Guarantees. So, how does this all play out in the real world? Well, Alan Jackson, if anybody likes Alan Jackson here, there we go, all right. Alan Jackson had a song years ago. It was one of my favorite Alan Jackson songs. It was called, uh, I don't know what it was called. Okay, I don't know what it was called, but here's, here's how the song opened. It said, it said this, it said, Cowboys don't cry and heroes don't die. Good always wins again and again. And love is a sweet dream that always comes true. Oh, if life were like the movies, I'd never be blue. But here in the real world, it's not that easy at all, because when hearts get broken, it's real tears that fall. And darling, it's sad but true, but the one thing I've learned from you is that the boy don't always get the girl here in the real world. Now, Alan Jackson has learned one of the truths in life, and that is this. Women ruin everything. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's not it. No. No, so, sometimes our hopes and dreams, sometimes our hopes and dreams do not line up with reality. They do not. We think we know how it's going to end. We have a hope and a dream, and it just doesn't work out that way. Today we're going to talk about three references in the Bible to what real-world faith looks like. Three quick references. I could go to a dozen of these, but we're just going to hit three. We're going to spend a lot of time on the first one a lot less time on the second one, and we're just barely going to touch the third one. And actually, they're going to hold signs up at me with numbers on, tell me how much time I have left, apparently. And so the third one may not even happen. I have an escape hatch. And if we get running too long, we will pull a cord and we'll escape. Cut it off short. But in your Bibles, you have already turned, hopefully, to 1 Samuel. And this morning, I want to start off with a story about one of my favorite Bible stories, one of my favorite heroes. And to me, he's one of the unsung heroes in our Bible, and that is my man, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is the son of Saul, who was the first king of Israel, in case you didn't know that. And we first see Jonathan in 1 Samuel 13. Don't go to 13. I want you to go to 14. In 1 Samuel chapter 14. But he first shows up in 13, and here we see who he is. He's the son of Saul, and he is a commander in the army. And he commands 1,000 men. So he's a leader already in the army at a young age. And this guy is a real man. He's a warrior. And he's not uh, one of those guys that likes to sit among the tents with his mommy. For all you Jacob fans, if you like Jacob, this is not your man. This is a real man. And I want you to read 1 Samuel 14. We're going to look at the first 14 verses in 1 Samuel. Actually, let's back up one, chat, one verse, back to uh, two verses, actually, 13.22. We'll start at uh, 1 Samuel 13.22. So on the day of the battle... Not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. That means the Philistines had the technology of iron forges, and they had all the weapons, and Israel did not even have weapons at the time. The only people that had swords were Saul and Jonathan. So they have an army basically of sticks and stones going up against an army that's very, very well armored, ready to go. So what the Israelites have done, and they've turned it into a guerrilla war, 
They're hiding in the rocks and in the hills and in the caves, and that's how they fight. They've learned to fight the only way they know how. They're outnumbered, they're outgunned, so they're kind of hiding in the hills, and they'll come out and they'll do little attacks. And that's the lead into where we're at today. So on the day of battle, not a soldier was saw, Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, who was son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Gibeah. So he's going through a very tight area with cliffs. There's no way in or out of this. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. And if you've never marked it in your Bible, if you've never highlighted it, you've never circled it, this is the verse you want to focus on. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. So go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if we are, if where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. That's usually the best way to climb. With his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area about half of an acre. This verse shows us some great things about Jonathan. That is one, that he's a great man of faith. He has incredible faith. A lot of times we talk about faith standing up to a giant. We use David and Goliath, and rightly so. That's a great story about standing up to unbeatable odds. But I submit to you that this story is no less amazing that Jonathan would take on a whole detachment of Philistines. That took incredible faith, and he makes that great statement that with God, it doesn't matter if it's a whole bunch of guys or one guy. It doesn't make any difference if God's on your side. So that shows his incredible level of faith. He understands and accepts the sovereignty of God in this situation. God is sovereign. He knows that God's going to decide how this battle plays out. It's up to God. It's not up to him. He acknowledges that the victory comes from God and not from his own strength. And God uses this. If we kept reading, we would find out that this battle turns into a rout, that God causes this great confusion in the Philistine army, and God brings about this amazing victory, all because Jonathan acted out in faith in God and right in front of him in his one circumstance. And we said all that to realize that Jonathan is an incredible man of faith. And that shows his character right there. Let's jump ahead to uh, 1 Samuel 18. Just a few pages up ahead. Actually, we're going to start at 1757. Because I don't want to miss one of the most important parts of the story of David and Goliath. And I always tell this to my Sunday school classes. So, so I'm going to start at 1 Samuel 1757. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, 
Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. I love that part of the story. And I always ask my classes this. I say, how do you carry a head? And they always say the same thing, by the hair. So there, there he is, David, after this great victory, picture it in your mind, he's had this great victory, the battle explodes as soon as that happens, there's all this confusion, and I'm sure David's running around, and they're all running around, and David shows up when Saul calls him in, and he's still holding on to the head of Goliath, still remembering the great victory that he just had, I'm sure it's kind of messy dripping on the, on the ground, but there he is, and Saul says, whose son are you, young man? David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, the sword was a very valuable thing that he gave David because there was not a lot of them around. And he gave David his sword. The point of this is, here we get a clearer picture of Jonathan's character. Because instantly he bonds with David. Now, we know what kind of man David was because we spend a lot of time studying David. But you know as well as I do that David would not ever have hooked up with somebody who was an ungodly man. David has a heart for God's word, for obeying God. And I'm sure Jonathan was the same way. Usually when we have close friends, usually they have the same interests that we do. It's hard to be close to someone when they have opposite interests of us or opposite dreams and goals. So we know that Jonathan was probably a lot like David, a man who loved God's word. He was a man of strength, a man of faith. And we're really getting to see a picture of who David, of Jonathan is. I'm sorry, who Jonathan is. Let's jump ahead to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, 15, all the way up to 18. And this, is, this takes place while David is on the run. Saul starts to snap, and he realizes David's going to be king instead of his family. And he starts to chase David around, tries to kill him. And David has to run out in the wilderness, and he spends a long time out in the wilderness on the run from Saul. And let's pick up our story here in verse 15. While David was at Horish in the desert of Siv, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't miss that. Jonathan helped David find strength in God. So Jonathan is actually discipling David and encouraging David in the Lord. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. David was weary and confused not understanding the clear picture of what God was doing. And Jonathan comes to him and encourages him in the Lord and says, the Lord's still in control. You're still going to be king. He totally understands God's providence. He's totally willing to accept what God has, which is David to be king. He's already subjected himself to submission to David and says, I will be second in command. I don't need to be the man. God wants you to be king. I'll be underneath you. Imagine the great humility that that takes. He had every right to be king as the system went back then. But he has God's will first. His will is underneath that. He's willing to serve under David. They make a covenant. They make a plan. They high-five. They fist bump. They're ready to go. We're ready for the happy ending because we already have it all set. Everything's ready. 
godly man. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Somehow I don't think our man fled. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. David's, or Jonathan's life has a tragic ending. Despite all his great faith, Despite his service to the Lord, God did not deliver him from his moment of danger. He did not. And to add insult to injury, if we read a little farther, we'd see that they take his body and they fasten it to a wall in a Philistine city to honor a pagan god. That's where Jonathan ends up. And when I read that, I have to say inside, it's like, no, it shouldn't end like this. I mean, godly men and women should make out better than that, shouldn't they? Uh, it just seems all wrong to me. It doesn't make sense. Here's a godly man who never wavered in his faith or service, and tragically, he's cut down in the prime of his life. Interesting. Well, let's fast forward. We're going back in your Bible, but let's go to Job. Let's talk about Job for a second. Job 36. Now, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Job, but we'll review it just in case there's somebody here that's not. Job was a man who lived probably way, way back before Abraham, and a lot of scholars believe this was the first book written in the Bible, which puts it way back. Job was a rich man, and, and God bragged about him before Satan, and Satan decided that uh, he could make Job curse God, so all these tragedies strike Job. And he goes through more trials than we could ever imagine, and most of them happen within 24 hours. And his three friends show up, and they're going to encourage him and counsel him and tell him what's wrong. They have it all figured out. So his three friends spend all these chapters, and if you've never read the book of Job, it can get very tedious and boring. Can I say that? Yes, it can. If you read all these different chapters, all these different rebuttals back and forth as these men explain what they think about God. But I want you to know that the last one to speak is a guy named Elihu. All right, he's the youngest one, so he knows the most. <laughs> But I want to pay particular attention to what he says, because what he's going to say pretty much sums up what everybody else is trying to say. I want you to go to Job 36. We're going to look at verse 5 to 12. And starting at verse 5. God is mighty, but does not despise men. He is mighty and firm in his purpose. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. He enthrones them with kings and exalts them forever. But if men are bound in chains, held fast by cords of affliction, he tells them what they have done, that they have sinned arrogantly. He makes them listen to correction and commands them to repent their evil and, and pay uh, close attention to this. If they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. Elihu is saying this, look, Job. We've got this all figured out. Everybody in this room understands it except you. Listen, God blesses those that are his. He curses those who aren't. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. You obviously must be bad because you do not have divine health and you're not living a full, prosperous life and total victory. 
Therefore, you obviously are a bad person. As soon as he finished speaking, God enters the picture. I love those first verses from God when God speaks. He said, who is this who speaks, who darkens my counsel with words without wisdom? As soon as he, can you imagine that as you're speaking, as soon as God says, who is this? What? And God goes on for four chapters and never once explains himself. Matter of fact, he asks questions back to those guys. I'll tell you the answer to your questions if you can answer mine. And for four chapters, we see the holiness, the sovereignty of God as he explains, if you can tell me how I hung the stars in space, then I will answer your question. Where were you when I created the foundations of the earth and set the earth right there? Where were you when I said to the ocean, this far and no farther? That's it. You stop here. If you can explain those, I'll explain myself to you. But I really want you to see what I really want to say. Look at chapter 42. Job 42, pay close attention. Remember what Elihu said about prosperity and everything would be great? I want you to, that's what he said about God. Verse 7, chapter 42, 7. After the Lord had said all these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. Why is he angry? Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. God is angry with them because they misrepresented who he was. And any time we take who God's character is and we try to turn it into something that we think God should be, we are making an idol. And that's exactly what they did. They thought they had understood that prosperity and divine health and good relationships obviously represents who God is. And God hates when we take that and we twist it around to what we think it should be. That's what his friends were guilty of. And I don't know what their punishment was going to be, but it wasn't going to have a happy ending. If they didn't do what he told them, I think he probably would have required their life because they misspoke of who he was. And that is why teaching and preaching comes with such a high accountability because God expects teachers and preachers to not misrepresent his name, his character, and his holiness. And everybody that teaches will give a special account for that. And when you tell your friends and your coworkers and your family about God, you are teaching. You need to make sure that you do not misrepresent who God is. That's why we need to have a complete understanding of who God is and not turn him into an idol of what we think he should be. So we have two guys so far. We see Jonathan, we see Job, we see godly men with incredible struggles in their life. Let's go to Hebrews. You say, that's too old school. We need to jump ahead in time. That's, that's really old, man. Okay, let's go 2,000 years forward. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. We're going to go to that great, great chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, which is a chapter about what? Faith, Hebrew 11. We're going to pick it up at verse 32. Hebrews 11, 32. And we're going to end up reading all the way down to 39. This gives us a front row seat, really, at what real world faith looks like or can look like. We see a great number of heroes through this chapter. And we're going to pick it up at 32, and it says this. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, 
and gain what was promised, to shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames, and escape the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And if it ended right there, we could say, yes! And we could all high-five and hit the parking lot and be ready to go. And sometimes I wish it ended right there. But it doesn't. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they may gain a better resurrection. There's, there's a picture of others who could have said, I renounce my faith, I changed my mind, I will, I will change my mind and they'll let me go and then I can go back and serve God. They do not do that. They were tortured, refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. The martyrs were commended for their faith. When were they commended for their faith? I mean, when, when they were sawing Isaiah in two, did they say, man, you have great faith. They were commended after they died. They were commended in heaven when they arrived in heaven. And I'm reminded when I read that, can you imagine the welcome that we will get when we go through the struggles of life that God puts us through? And sometimes we're, Christians are required to go through incredible struggles. The welcome that Jesus has for us. When we're faithful to the end and we press toward the finish line, even in the prospects of torture and execution. I don't know about you, but I look at our country. I do not like where we're headed. It seems to me right now that being a Christian is really not that popular. And I don't see a government that really right now supports Christians as much as it does other religions. And I can see the day coming when faith in this country will cost us something. I can see that coming down the road. We certainly know it happens in the book of Revelation. But that's faith in a real fallen world. That's what can happen. That's what does happen. I got bad news for some of the preachers on TV. When I see people in goat skins and sheep skins living in caves, that is not prosperity. That is not living a full life with good relationships and divine health and plenty to pay your bills. That is life in a real, real world. That's what it can be like. Now, God blesses us with all kinds of things. But sometimes he requires us to go through great struggles and tragedies. So where do we go from here? I mean, we've seen that having faith in God does not preclude us from experiencing suffering or trials. It may not exclude us from becoming a victim or from facing an untimely death. How do we make sense of all this? There's only one place I know to go to make sense of all this, and that's Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And now remember the book of Romans. Sometimes, sometimes we read these books and we forget the setting that these books were in, these letters. This, this book right here, Romans, was written by Paul to the church in Rome. But remember, it's written at a time when the Roman church is just beginning to go through some incredible persecution. Incredible. Probably some of the worst persecution that the church will ever see. He's writing this letter to them. And he goes through in chapter 8 and he starts to make the case that, look, you're right, things are messed up. You're persecuted right now. You're going through all kinds of trials and hardships. It's all messed up. Even creation is all messed up. 
the fall of man, we see that creation even got swept into it. All this confusion. And he says this in verse 28, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul tells us, no matter how messed up this gets, God is working all things to the good. And for me personally, that is great head knowledge, but I need a little bit more than that. I mean, it's, when you're in these trials, if it's just a head knowledge to you that God is working for the good, it's almost like, okay, but I don't feel it. I don't, I, sometimes we just don't quite feel like God is working towards the good. I know it, but I don't feel it. That's why I think he explains it later on, and I'm going to look at verse 31 and 32. He says this, and it's almost what we're saying this morning. What then shall we say in response to all of this? What shall we say in response to this? What is this? To all these bad things and that God's working things for the good. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? God is for us. That never changes. If you're a child of his, he is always for you. He's not against you. Sometimes in life when we're going through all kinds of struggles and trials, it feels like God is not for us. But we know that he is for us. God did not spare his own son in death. He did not. He sent him all the way to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He did not spare him in death. But I'm also reminded this. He did not spare him in life either. He could have. I mean, he could have said, look, Jesus, you're going to have a horrible ending. So I'm going to make your life not so bad. We're going to you know, have lots, plenty to pay your bills, divine health, good relationships. But he did not. He did not spare him in life. He had him take on all of the struggles and the pain and the suffering and the hard times that we have. He experienced all of it, just like we did. He did not spare his son in life, just as he did not spare him in death. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's death. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, that is Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's saying this, God's love is so inseparable from us, we can't even imagine it. He goes to great lengths to try to explain, look, I can't even explain this to you. No matter what the situation, God's love never fails. It never ends. And that's the part where we can feel that God loves us. It's never failing. It's so much unlike us. I mean, somebody crosses me two, three times. I don't feel it anymore. I'm not really with you anymore. Matter of fact, I'm just going to go right into apathy. I don't, even, I don't even pay attention to you anymore. God is not like this. I'm reminded it's not about what we do, what we don't do. When we sin, when we don't sin, it never stops. The love never fails. And that's how I know God is working for my good. Because of his great love, it never ends, even in bad circumstances. And now I know that he's working out for the good because of his great love. And now I know that it's really not dependent on my faith, but it's dependent on who he is. God's wonderful, wonderful character is what we trust in. And that's going to lead me to some final, final thoughts on who God is. I want you to write these down. If you didn't listen to anything else I said today, listen to these thoughts about who God is. All right, number one. 
Our faith is never to be in our faith in God. I will say that again so you don't miss it. Our faith is never to be in our faith in God. Our faith does not set the limitations for our life. Our faith in God sets the limitations in who he is, not in our faith. We think about our faith in God like somehow it's a magic. If I just had more faith, if I just ramp up my faith, then God will do this and he'll do that. It's not about that. It's about who God is. He's holy. He's sovereign. He answers to no one. But we know this. He's good. And his love never fails. Even when it doesn't make any sense at all, the focus is always on him and not on my amount of faith. It's on who God is. Number two, God is sovereign and answers to no one. Make sure you're not guilty of misrepresenting who he is or making him into what you think he should be. We all will give an account, and I got news for the guys on TV and every ministry and our ministry and every preacher and pastor. Everybody will give an account for how they represented Jesus Christ. And I can't imagine if you get up, there's, I got to tell you this. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I got to. I heard John MacArthur this week, I listened to an old sermon, and he read a quote from Kenneth Copeland. Okay. I, if, you don't, if you don't know who Kenneth Copeland is, that's up to you, but here's what he said. I just couldn't believe it. He said this, basically, I'll wrap it up. A quote from his book. He said, he finally came to the realization that Jesus was not God. Jesus was just a man who had been redeemed. And God told him, look, you, if you were back then and you were redeemed, you could have done the same thing Jesus did. That, and he realized that it's a redeemed man that bought mankind. So if he was redeemed, he could go back and do the same. If you believe that, you cannot be saved. Period. Jesus was a man, yes, but was God also. Otherwise, Kenneth Copeland couldn't be redeemed. Therefore, he couldn't go back and help himself because he could never be redeemed. But if Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't be redeemed. His whole argument falls apart on itself. If Jesus was just a man, Kenneth Copeland can't be redeemed. So he could not go back and do... I'm not picking on any preacher per se, but that is heresy. And if you believe anything like that or listen to people like that, you are listening to false teachers. They will give an account just like everybody else and stand before God. I don't even know how you can be saved. That's just an extra. That's not even on my paper, but I had to throw that in there. Oh, man. For his children, God, God has promised to bring good out of all circumstances, but never promised our lives will be filled with good circumstances. Never promised it. He promised to meet our needs, but he also promised to tell us what our needs are. He decided what our needs are. He decides we don't decide. I would like to have lots of things, but he has decided so far that I do not need them. God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's in... Look, it's not based on... This is not a book about rich people having fun. That's not what this book is. This book was written... I don't care what part of the Bible you like. This book was written in a time of great uncertainty. There was no guarantee with the church in Rome where they were going to end up. A lot of them ended up tied to a stake or fed to lions. Paul gives them these promises from God, reminding them that it's not about us. It's about who he is. That's life in the real world that we live in. God is for us, and his love for us is inseparable. It never ends. I can't stress that enough. Sometimes we, we feel like, you know, we can feel God's love. When things are going right, and I got the new job, and I got the raise promotion, and the house is paid off, and everything, my 401k looks great, I can feel God's love then. He, he loves me. I can feel it. 
As soon as we get laid off and we get sick and our wife leaves us and everything goes wrong, I don't feel it anymore. I don't feel God's love. It doesn't matter. Our circumstances are not an indicator of God's presence of love. It never ends. We need to nail that down. God's love is always there. It's not like us. I, like I said before, somebody does me wrong, I don't love you anymore. I'm gone. Jesus is nothing like that. It never ends. How unlike us that is. Number five, it was God's great love that sent his son to Calvary to pay the penalty for our sin. How can we not accept Jesus as Savior and Lord? If you never accepted Christ, if you never really came to the point where you need to accept Christ as Savior, that's the only way. His love sent his son to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. There's no other way to heaven. And he was more than a man. He was God. And if we accept Christ as Savior, how can we not love him after all he's done for us? And if we love him, how can we not obey him? It's impossible to say, I love him and not obey him. Impossible. Jesus said that everybody who loves him will keep his commands, and there will be fruit. Fruit is a guarantee of it. That's life in a real world. That's faith in a real world. That's what it looks like. Lord, I pray for everyone in the whole world that nothing bad happens. Well, here in the real world, it's not that easy at all. But knowing a loving God cares, ordains, sustains, and controls everything, changes everything for me, and it should for you too. God is in control. He's sovereign. His love is inseparable. It's never-ending. And he's working out all the things for good for those that love him. Aren't you glad that it's not up to you? It's up to God. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's in control. He's awesome. And we will spend eternity trying to come to the depths of who he is. And he has promised to carry us through every single thing in life, even if it means torture, being sawn in two, or being flogged and mistreated. He wants us to press on hard to the finish line because there is light at the end of our tunnel because of who he is, not because of how much faith I have in him. Our faith does not set the limits of our life, but a holy, sovereign God does. Let's pray here this morning.